Section 27 of The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 6. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ryan Fahey, Fairfield, Connecticut. The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 6. Edited by Charles F. Horn, Rossiter Johnson, and John Rudd. Section 27, The Mad Parliament. Beginning of England's House of Commons, A.D. 1258, by John Lingard, Part 2. The king, now finding himself at liberty, was induced to visit Louis of France, and Leicester embraced the opportunity to return to England and reorganize the association which had so lately been dissolved. His hopes of success were founded on the pride and imprudence of Prince Edward, who, untaught by experience, had called around him a guard of foreigners, and entrusted to their leaders the custody of his castles. Such conduct not only awakened the jealousy of the barons, but alienated the affections of the royalists. Henry, at his return, aware of the designs of his enemies, ordered the citizens of London, the inhabitants of the Cinque Ports, and the principal barons, and afterward all freemen throughout the kingdom, to swear fealty not only to himself, but, in the event of his death, to his eldest son, the Prince Edward. To the second oath, the Earl of Gloucester objected. He was immediately joined at Oxford by his associates, and in a few days the Earl of Leicester appeared at their head. With the royal banner displayed before them, they took Gloucester, Worcester, and Bridgenorth, ravaged without mercy the lands of the royalists, the foreigners, and the natives who refused to join their ranks, and, augmenting their numbers as they advanced, directed their march toward London. In London, the aldermen and principal citizens were devoted to the king, the mayor and the populace openly declared for the barons. Henry was in possession of the tower, and Edward, after taking by force 1,000 marks out of the temple, hastened to throw himself into the castle of Windsor, the most magnificent palace, if we may believe a contemporary, then existing in Europe. The queen attempted to follow her son by water, but the populace insulted her with the most opprobrious epithets, discharged volleys of filth into the royal barge, and prepared to sink it with large stones as it should pass beneath the bridge. The mayor at length took her under his protection and placed her in safety in the Episcopal Palace near St. Paul's. The king of the Romans now appeared again on the scene in the quality of mediator. The negotiation lasted three weeks, but Henry was compelled to yield to the increasing power of his adversaries, and it was agreed that the royal castles should once more be entrusted to the custody of the barons, the foreigners be again banished, and the provisions of Oxford be confirmed, subject to such alterations as should be deemed proper by a committee appointed for that purpose. Henry returned to his palace at Westminster, new officers of state were selected, and the king's concessions were notified to the conservators of the peace in the several counties. The king now found himself sufficiently strong to take the field. He was disappointed in an attempt to obtain possession of Dover, but nearly succeeded in surprising the Earl of Leicester, who, with a small body of forces, had marched from Kenilworth to Southwark. Henry appeared on one side of the town, the prince on the other, and the royalists had previously closed the gates of the city. So imminent was the danger that the earl, who had determined not to yield, advised his companions to assume the cross, and to prepare themselves for death by the offices of religion. But the opportunity was lost by a strict adherence to the custom of the times. 
a herald was sent to require him to surrender, and in the meanwhile the populace, acquainted with the danger of their favorite, burst open the gates and introduced him into the city. The power of the two parties was now more equally balanced, and their mutual apprehensions inclined them to listen to the pacific exhortations of the bishops. It was agreed to refer every subject of dispute to the arbitration of the King of France, an expedient which had been proposed the last year by Henry, but rejected by Leicester. Louis accepted the honorable office and summoned the parties to appear before him at Amiens. The king attended in person. The earl, who was detained at home in consequence of a real or pretended fall from his horse, had sent his attorneys. Both parties solemnly swore to abide by the decision of the French monarch. Louis heard the allegations and arguments of each, consulted his court, and pronounced judgment in favor of Henry. He annulled the provisions of Oxford as destructive of the rights of the crown and injurious to the interests of the nation, ordered the royal castles to be restored, gave to the king the authority to appoint all the officers of the state and of his household, and to call to his council whomsoever he thought proper, whether native or foreigner, reinstated him in the same condition in which he was before the meeting of the mad parliament, and ordered that all offenses committed by either party should be buried in oblivion. This award was soon afterward confirmed by Pope Urban, and the Archbishop of Canterbury received an order to excommunicate all who, in violation of their oaths, should refuse to submit to it. The barons had already taken their resolution. The moment the decision was announced to them, they declared that it was, on the face of it, contrary to truth and justice, and had been procured by the undue influence which the Queen of Louis, the sister-in-law to Henry, possessed over the mind of her husband. Hostilities immediately recommenced, and as every man of property was compelled to adhere to one of the two parties, the flames of civil war were lighted up in almost every part of the kingdom. In the north, and in Cornwall and Devon, the decided superiority of the royalists forced the friends of the barons to dissemble their real sentiments. The Midland counties and the marches of Wales were pretty equally divided. But in the Cinque Ports, the metropolis, and the neighboring districts, Montfort ruled without opposition. His partisan, Thomas Fitz Thomas, had been intruded into the office of mayor of London, and a convention for their mutual security had been signed by that officer and the commonalty of the city on the one part, and the earls of Leicester, Gloucester, and Derby, Hugh Le Dispenser, the Grand Justiciary, and twelve barons on the other. In the different ward moats, every male inhabitant above twelve years of age was sworn a member of the association. A constable and marshal of the city were appointed, and orders were given that at the sound of the great bell at St. Paul's, all should assemble in arms and obey the authority of these officers. The efficacy of the new arrangements was immediately put to the test. Dispenser, the justiciary, came from the tower, put himself at the head of the associated bands, and conducted them to destroy the two palaces of the King of the Romans, at Isleworth and Westminster, and the houses of the nobility and citizens known or suspected to be attached to the royal cause. The justices of the king's bench and the barons of the exchequer were thrown into prison. The monies belonging to foreign merchants and bankers, which for security had been deposited in the churches, were carried to the tower, and the Jews, to the number of five hundred men, women, and children, were conducted to a place of confinement. Out of these, Dispenser selected a few of the more wealthy, 
that he might enrich himself by their ransom, the rest he abandoned to the cruelty and rapacity of the populace, who, after stripping them of their clothes, massacred them all in cold blood. Cock ben Abraham, who was considered the most opulent individual in the kingdom, had been killed in his own house by John Fitzjohn, one of the barons. The murderer at first appropriated to himself the treasure of his victim, but he afterward thought it more prudent to secure a moiety by making a present of the remainder to Leicester. Henry had summoned the tenants of the crown to meet him at Oxford, and being joined by Comyn, Bruce, and Balliol, the lords of the Scottish borders, unfurled his standard and placed himself at the head of the army. His first attempts were successful. Northampton, Leicester, and Nottingham, three of the strongest fortresses in the possession of the barons, were successively reduced, and among the captives were reckoned Simon, the eldest of Leicester's sons, fourteen other bannerets, forty knights, and a numerous body of esquires. From Nottingham he was recalled into Kent by the danger of his nephew Henry, besieged in the castle of Rochester. At his approach, the enemy, who had taken and pillaged the city, retired with precipitation, and the king, after an ineffectual attempt to secure the cooperation of the sink ports, fixed his headquarters in the town of Luz. Leicester, having added a body of 15,000 citizens to his army, marched from London with a resolution to bring the controversy to an issue. From Fletching he dispatched a letter to Henry, protesting that neither he nor his associates had taken up arms against the king, but against the evil counselors who enjoyed and abused the confidence of their sovereign. Henry returned a public defiance, which was accompanied by a message from Prince Edward and the King of the Romans, declaring in the name of the royal barons that the charge was false, pronouncing Montfort and his adherents perjured, and daring the earls of Leicester and Derby to appear in the king's court and prove their assertion by single combat. After the observation of these forms, which the feudal connection between the lord and the vassal was supposed to make necessary, Montfort prepared for the battle. It was the peculiar talent of this leader to persuade his followers that the cause in which they fought was the cause of heaven. He represented to them that their objects were liberty and justice, and that their opponent was a prince whose repeated violation of the most solemn oaths had released them from their allegiance, and had entailed on his head the curse of the Almighty. He ordered each man to fasten a white cross on the breast and shoulder, and to devote the next evening to the duties of religion. Early in the morning he marched forward, and, leaving his baggage and standard on the summit of a hill, about two miles from Luz, descended into the plain. Henry's foragers had discovered and announced his approach, and the royalists, in three divisions, silently awaited the attack. Leicester, having called before the ranks the Earl of Gloucester and several other young noblemen, bade them kneel down and conferred on them the order of knighthood, and the Londoners, who impatiently expected the conclusion of the ceremony, rushed with loud shouts on the enemy. They were received by Prince Edward, broken in a few minutes, and driven back as far as the standard. Had the prince returned from the pursuit and fallen on the rear of the Confederates, the victory might have been secured. But he remembered the insults which the citizens had offered to his mother and the excesses of which they had lately been guilty. The suggestions of prudence were less powerful than the thirst of revenge, and the pursuit of the fugitives carried him with the flower of the army four miles from the field of battle. More than 3,000 Londoners were slain, 
but the advantage was dearly purchased by the loss of the victory and the ruin of the royal cause leicester who viewed with pleasure the thoughtless impetuosity of the prince fell with the remainder of his forces on henry and his brother a body of scots who fought on foot was cut to pieces their leaders john comyn and robert de bruce were made prisoners the same fate befell the king of the romans and the combat was feebly maintained by the exertions and example of philip bassett who fought near the person of henry but when that nobleman sank through loss of blood his retainers fled the king whose horse had been killed under him surrendered and leicester conducted the royal captive into the priory the fugitives as soon as they learned the fate of their sovereign came back to share his captivity and voluntarily yielded themselves to their enemies when edward returned from the pursuit both armies had disappeared he traversed the field which was strewed with the bodies of the slain and the wounded anxiously but fruitlessly inquiring after his father as he approached Luz, the barons came out and on the first shock the earl warren with the king's half-brothers and seven hundred horse fled to pevensey whence they sailed to the continent edward with a strong body of veterans from the welsh marches rode along the wall to the castle and understanding that his father was a captive in the priory obtained permission to visit him from leicester an unsuccessful attempt made by the barons against the castle revived his hopes he opened a negotiation with the chiefs of the party and the next morning was concluded the treaty known by the name of the mise of Luz. by this it was agreed that all prisoners taken during the war should be set at liberty that the princes edward and henry should be kept as hostages for the peaceable conduct of their fathers the king of england and the king of the romans and that all matters which could not be amicably adjusted in the next parliament should be referred to the decision of certain arbitrators in the battle of Luz, about five thousand men are said to have fallen on each side by this victory the royal authority was laid prostrate at the feet of leicester the scheme of arbitration was merely a blind to deceive the vulgar his past conduct had proved how little he was to be bound by such decisions and the referees themselves aware of the probable result refused to accept the office the great object of his policy was the preservation of the ascendancy which he had acquired to henry who was now the convenient tool of his ambition he paid every exterior demonstration of respect but never suffered him to depart out of his custody and without consulting him affixed his seal to every order which was issued for the degradation of the royal authority the king of the romans a more resolute and dangerous enemy instead of being restored to liberty was closely confined in the castle of wallingford and afterward in that of kenilworth and the two princes were confided to the custody of the new governor of dover with instructions to allow of no indulgence which might facilitate their escape instead of removing the sheriffs a creature of leicester was sent to each county with the title of conservator of the peace this officer was empowered to arrest all persons who should carry arms without the king's special license to prevent all breaches of the peace to employ the posse comitatus to apprehend offenders and to cause four knights to be chosen as the representatives of the county in the next parliament in that assembly a new form of government was established to last unless it were dissolved by mutual consent till the compromise of Luz had been carried into full execution not only in the reign of henry but also of edward the heir apparent 
This form had been devised by the heads of the faction to conceal their real views from the people, and was so contrived that they retained in their own hands the sovereign authority, while to the superficial observer they seemed to have resigned it to the king and his council. It was enacted that Henry should delegate the power of choosing his counselors to a committee of three persons, whose proceedings should be valid, provided they were attested by the signatures of two of the number. The king immediately issued a writ to the Earl of Leicester, the Earl of Gloucester, and the Bishop of Chichester, authorizing them to appoint in his name a council of nine members, nor were they slow in selecting for that purpose the most devoted of their adherents. The powers given to this council were most extensive and to be exercised without control whenever the parliament was not sitting. Besides the usual authority, it possessed the appointment of all the officers of state, of all the officers of the household, and of all the governors of the royal castles. Three were ordered to be in constant attendance on the king's person, all were to be summoned on matters of great importance, and a majority of two-thirds was required to give a sanction to their decisions. Hitherto the original committee seemed to have been forgotten, but it was contrived that when the council was so divided that the consent of two-thirds could not be obtained, the question should be reserved for the determination of the three electors, an artifice by which, under the modest pretense of providing against dissension, they invested themselves with the sovereign authority. By additional enactments, it was provided that no foreigner, though he might go or come, or reside peaceably, should be employed under the government, that past offenses should be mutually forgiven, that the two charters, the provisions made the last year, in consequence of the statutes of Oxford, and all the ancient and laudable customs of the realm, should be inviolably observed, and that three prelates should be appointed to reform the state of the church, and to procure for the clergy, with the aid of the civil power, if necessary, full compensation for their losses during the late troubles. The earl was now in reality possessed of more extensive authority than Henry had ever enjoyed, but he soon discovered that to retain the object of his ambition would require the exertion of all his powers. The cause of the captive monarch was ardently espoused by foreign nations and by the sovereign pontiff. Adventurers from every province of France crowded to the royal standard which Queen Eleanor had erected at Dom in Flanders, and a numerous fleet assembled in the harbor to transport to England the thousands who had sworn to humble the pride of a disloyal and aspiring subject. To oppose them, Leicester had summoned to the camp on Barham Downs not only the king's military tenants, but the whole force of the nation, and, taking on himself the command of the fleet, cruised in the narrow seas to intercept the invaders. But the winds seemed to be leagued with the earl. The queen's army was detained for several weeks in the vicinity of Dom, and the mercenaries gradually disbanded themselves when the short period for which they had contracted to serve was expired. At the same time, the pontiff had commissioned Guido, Cardinal Bishop of Sabina, to proceed to England and take Henry under the papal protection, but... Deterred by the hint of a conspiracy against his life from crossing the sea, he excommunicated the barons unless before the 1st of September they should restore the king to all his rights, and at the same time summoned four of the English prelates to appear before him at Boulogne. After much tergiversation, these obeyed, but appealed from his jurisdiction to the equity of the pope or a general council, 
and though they consented to bring back a sentence of excommunication against the king's enemies, they willingly suffered it to be taken from them by the officers at Dover. Their appeal was approved by the convocation of the clergy, and Guido, after publishing the excommunication himself at Hesden, returned to Rome, where he was elevated to the chair of St. Peter by the name of Clement IV. End of section 27